Well, if you got a bulletin on the way, and there is a sermon outline in there, and I want to invite you to pull that out. Pastor Curtis mentioned Wednesday night, introduced our theme verse for the year. It comes from Colossians 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And it's rather uh, interesting that God in his providence brought us to the passage that we are at today. I'm going to talk a little bit about praying. But first, I got a... Mylon, could you hit the... Are the lights the right place? There we go. Thanks, buddy. Um, the, uh, the news recently, I saw an article, and I saved some pictures of it. An end of an era, and some of you can feel old along with me with this one, but an end of an era took place this past May in New York City when they removed the very last in the entire city of New York, the very last payphone. Yeah, they left the one in New York in uh, Times Square until the very end, uh, but it was the very last coin-operated payphone removed from the entire city. It's been replaced with a kiosk offering 24/7 Wi-Fi, but because it was the last, you know, the last of its kind, it, it made the news, uh, being the final remnant from a bygone era. Uh, the uh, that uh, payphone contraption there uh, was uh, sent to the city of New York's museum for a new exhibit there that they started in June and ran through just this past month called Analog City, New York City, BC, standing for before computers. Um, now, it makes me sound as old as I feel to say that part of my growing up years is now part of a museum. <laughs> Uh, but it's true, you know, the way that we contact each other, the way that we stay in touch with each other has changed so much over the years, over the past 30 years or so. Payphones and handwritten letters are a thing of the past. And maybe you have some of those letters, you know, in your, uh, in your trunk or your, or your uh, collection of old things. Um, this generation won't have those kind of things to go back and look through because those things are, are sort of a thing of the past. Today we use cell phones and texting and email and direct messages and... And that's, uh, that's okay, you know, we expect things to change and, and uh, life to be different. And yet knowing that things change uh, sort of highlights things that don't change. And prayer is one of those things that doesn't change, right? Uh, down through the centuries, prayer is the one and the only way for us to stay connected to God. Uh, prayer is still the only means to talk to God, and despite how much changes in this world, at critical moments, even in our world today, it's pretty obvious that people know that. People are very much aware of that. Whenever something tragic happens, you know, and we saw even this week down at MSU, a tremendous tragedy take place. It is intriguing how from every corner of society you hear people call to pray. You know, pray for MSU. Pray for whatever is going on in whatever situation and setting. People just instinctively realize that the only way out of our worst situations is to talk to God, is to pray. But prayer is mysterious. You know, how does it work? Uh, is there a right way or is there a wrong way? Do you have to bow your head and fold your hands and close your eyes and, and get on your knees, say a certain set of words? Or does none of that really matter? Um, it can be quite confusing. I scanned through several books on prayer this past week, found this quote from the book titled Christian Prayer for Dummies. Now, I'm not necessarily recommending that as a resource for you, but it was, a, it was an interesting quote. They put it this way, Prayer is like a greased pig at a county fair, often pursued but rarely grasped. 
And I think that there's some truth to that because uh, it might feel that way, which is why I think it's really important that we reconnect with what the Bible says about prayer. And this morning we come to one of those passages that gives very, very practical guidance about prayer. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible up on your phone, if you would find Luke chapter 18 with me. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, this morning we come to verses 1 through 17 of Luke chapter 18. Now, we're pulling near the end of Jesus' journey with his disciples to Jerusalem for the last time. In Luke 19, uh, the Palm Sunday events are recorded and the last week of Christ is going to begin to be addressed in the media chapters after that. And I share that partly because I want you to know the end is in sight for this very long study that we've been working through in the Gospel of Luke. But also because I think it is very important context because the the closer that Jesus came to Jerusalem, the more that he was aware of what was going to happen when he arrived there, um, the, the, aware, the more aware he was also of how his disciples needed tools to navigate life when he was gone. And it makes it just a very, a very natural step that he would insert a lengthy discussion about prayer. Uh, with that awareness in mind. And so in the passage we're going to look at today, there's two stories that Jesus tells, and both of them uh, address prayer. And both of them highlight uh, a, a certain part of productive praying. Uh, we'll read the first five verses to get going. It says this, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so she won't eventually come and attack me. Now, what I want you to grab from these two stories this morning is two traits that maybe don't fit into the, the toolbox of what we normally think of when we think about prayer. Because usually our minds go to those, well, what's the right formula? What's the right posture? What, what's the right thing I need to do if I'm going to have my prayers answered by God? Jesus doesn't address those things. Instead, instead, he tells these two stories and highlights two very significant traits uh, for productive praying. And the first one is this, persistent pleading. Persistent pleading. I love how Jesus has a way of telling stories with totally unexpected characters and totally unexpected changes of events. Uh, you think back through just a few of the stories we've looked at in the past several chapters. You know, the Good Samaritan story where Jesus tells this story about a guy beaten up on a road. And who's the hero? The hero is a Samaritan who nobody would expect to be the hero. In fact, nobody wanted to be the hero. But Jesus made the good, the good Samaritan the hero of the story. Uh, we looked at the prodigal son. And uh, for the most part, we tend to read that and we think about the son as this one that was so did such an offensive thing against his father. And yet he's the one who changed course. He's the one who turned, came to his senses, came back to his father. And the story closes with really the older brother being the one sort of leaving in the lurch, still standing outside, refusing to do the right thing. 
Uh, we looked at uh, the parable of the unscrupulous manager ripped off his boss and then is commended, is held up as an example by Jesus uh, and uh, draws a lesson from that. And, and we looked at ri the rich man and Lazarus. And in that culture, riches were a sign that you were blessed by God. And yet you get to the end of the story and the rich man's in hell and Lazarus, who had nothing in his life here, he's the one in heaven. He's the one in paradise. Uh, over and over and over again, Jesus does it. His stories take this twist that nobody saw coming uh, and uses that uh, to teach a very profound truth. And it happens here too. You know, his introductory character is this unjust judge. Now, if there's anything that you don't want to describe a judge, it would be the word unjust. Uh, but Jesus says, tells the story, there's an unjust judge who didn't fear God, could care less about God, and didn't care what other people thought. Um, a rotten public official determining the fate of other people in society is about as bad of a scenario as you could picture, especially if you're somebody who needs justice, who has something that's happened in your life and you need to go before a court of law. Uh, and so that's the first person that we meet. And then the second person that you meet is this widow in the story uh, who... Uh, did what Jesus wants to use as the model. She was persistent in her pleading. And Jesus uses that as a lesson about prayer. Now, to get that, you have to really start with the introduction there because he says at the very beginning, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them he had this intended target. This is the takeaway. This is what I want you guys to grab onto, that you should always pray and should not give up. And that happens in a context. I know we read our Bibles and see the big numbers there and just assume that those numbers were always there. When Luke wrote this gospel, he didn't put number 18 there. It was flowing right after what comes to the end of chapter 17. And at the end of chapter 17, last Sunday, we talked a little bit about uh, Jesus teaching on the coming kingdom and about how uh, he, he told them, there's going to be days that you're going to just long for me to come back long for me to return. Um, and the, that focus was in the coming kingdom of God would be both on rescue and wrath. Right after that, he starts to talk about prayer. And I don't think that's any coincidence at all. Uh, with that rather ominous message sort of lingering in the background, Jesus says to his guys, I know you're going you're gonna to go through some times that you just wish I would come back. And here's the thing. Don't give up praying when that's happening. Realize prayer is your key tool to use in those times. But, you know, as I thought about that context, especially in the light of the, the return of Christ, I think it's a valid thing for us to, to, us to consider as well because we're still waiting for Christ to come back, right? And if you, you know, pay attention to uh, things happening in our world uh, past few years or even just the past few weeks... It just seems as though so many things happening uh, in uh, the, the world at large, it, it makes us as Christians instinctively to realize we're getting closer all the time to Jesus' return. Getting closer all the time. Uh, our world culturally and politically and internationally is an increasingly dark place. And so this fits well because instead of the, the maybe the knee-jerk reaction that people tend to have of uh, freaking out or getting afraid, Jesus says, neither of those are the things you need to focus on. Instead, don't stop praying. Um, continue to pray. Don't give up on prayer. Now, 
to teach that lesson, Jesus te tells this story. And there's this unjust official that could care less about God or anybody else. And against that, as the, the introductory person, Jesus uh, describes this widow who has been unjustly treated. And I put it on your handout this way. Persistent widow had no rights and little hope, but she kept seeking justice until it arrived. Now, we don't get any details. Jesus doesn't tell any, you know, fleshing out exactly what type of injustice this woman faced. But he tells us enough to know some very important things. She was wronged, and the odds are steeply stacked against her. Uh, now, some of these odds you, you may not realize, because we live in a different time and a different culture. Uh, but as a woman in that culture, she had zero legal standing. It was a patriarchal society. That meant only men had rights. Only the leaders of homes, you know, could appear in a court of law. As a woman, she could not be a witness in a court case. She could not bring a case as a woman to a court of law. She had zero rights. That was the world. That was Jesus uh, was telling the story. As a woman in that culture, she had zero legal standing. Um, and her, the, one, the only one who could represent her, her husband, uh, was dead and was gone. Uh, often you hear through the Old Testament, even through the Gospels, God's heartbeat of passion and love for orphans and widows. Part of that is because they were the most neglected part of society. Because only men, particular husbands, uh, had rights. So this woman has enormous odds stacked against her. Legally, she's got no rights. She's got zero reason to hope. She can't even make a case in court with this judge, which is probably what most of us tend to think in our society when we read this story. She couldn't go to court and present her case. Um... But she was dogged in her persistence. There's an old maxim, and it comes back from the 1800s, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Right, we all know that. Uh, I uh, looked it up, and that was uh, actually, it dates back to the early 1800s, uh, by, uh, written by Thomas Palmer in the teacher's manual. It was intended to encourage kids back when school was an optional thing. It's not now, kids, just so you know. Back then when school was an optional thing, uh, it was written to encourage school children to do their homework because even when it gets hard, you know, persist and whatnot. But we've all heard that. If first you don't succeed, keep trying, right? Try, try again. This woman modeled that maxim. And you can sort of picture her, because like I said, it's different than what we first envisioned. It wasn't that she kept coming to the courtroom. She couldn't do that. You can picture shadowing this judge, sort of stalking him wherever he went. Uh, showing up on street corners, showing up at the market, showing up outside his home. She'd been wronged. He was the one who had the ability to right what had been done wrong to her. And she was going to be a pain in his side until she got, until he fixed it. Uh, you might know somebody with that type of tenacity, uh, but uh, that was the way this woman was, this widow was. And finally, the end of Jesus' story, the judge says, even though in most cases I could care less, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, just it doesn't bother me that other people have been wronged. But because this woman is such a nuisance, I'm going to give her the justice that she wants. 
the justice that she deserves before she attacks me. Which interesting translation there. I, I don't know that the judge was worried about her right hook necessarily. Maybe he, maybe he was. Uh, but he knew this woman is just so persistent and so uh, unwilling to stop that uh, she's made my life miserable and uh, could maybe even do more damage to his reputation than he wanted to, to uh, let happen. And so he responded to her persistent pleading. It's just kind of a weird story. And it's another weird story because Jesus has a way of, of telling stories that you never expect. Uh, but he had a point. And the point comes starting in verse 6. Because right after telling that story to his disciples, he said, And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Here's the thing that Jesus, the point that Jesus was making. Your Heavenly Father is the opposite of what that unjust judge is like. The opposite. He loves you and he's listening. If a horrible judge could do what is right in response to the pleas of this unrelated and inconsequential widow, um, how much more will God, whom Jesus has repeatedly described as our Father, if we put our faith in Christ, um, how much more will God bring about justice for his chosen ones, for his kids, for the children that he's picked and he loves and he's ready to listen to? It's this very stark contrast between an unjust judge and a perfect, loving father. God is the polar opposite of that unjust judge. And that was Jesus' point. Uh, one of my favorite pictures that Jesus has used of prayer is that, is that image of God as our Father. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's a couple places where he described God that way. In chapter 6, uh, he said, When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In the next chapter over, still in that same sermon, uh, uh, he said this, Ask... And it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you if your son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask him. Jesus uses that, that image intentionally and it is so important. If you put your faith in Jesus, God is your father. The best father that could be imagined, that could be, could be pictured. God is your father. He knows what you need. He's listening to your prayers. And he will do what is right when the time is right. Now that last bit is the catch, isn't it, sometimes? He will do what is right when the time is right. For you and, and me, when we pray, the time is right now. <laughs> you know? um, I want this to happen when I want it to happen. And we can oftentimes view prayer in a dangerous way as a lever to somehow get God to do what we want him to do right now. Um, but sometimes God's timing is different than that. Sometimes God's plan is bigger than ours. Uh, and it makes it hard makes it hard. It's especially hard when you're on the receiving end of what feels like injustice. 
And so I think, like this widow was, I think a big takeaway is the last part that I put on your hand out there. When the time is right, he'll write what's wrong. When the time is right in his timetable, God will write what's wrong. It may be right away. It may be soon. You pray and God intervenes. It might be right away. It might be uh, not that long down the road. But it also might be not until the end of time. But it'll happen. You can be confident of that. Um, and so keep talking to your father about whatever it is. Jesus is looking for people that, um, that trust him enough to pray in every situation and with every struggle and every, every injustice. And that last little piece there, he says at the, at the end, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It kind of ties it back to what he's talked about in the coming kingdom of God. When Christ returns, am I going to find people that are faithful at praying and full of faith as they pray. Um, persistence. Persistence is the first, the first trait. And then this widow models it. Persistent pleading. You go to verse 9 and you find the second one. I'll put it up here for you. The second one is just called honest transparency. We get a whole different story in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even that, like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's the twist, verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, when I'm justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now what's happening in that story? Again, prayer is the central focus of what's taking place. Having this conversation with God is the main point of the story. And again, there is this startling twist. Uh, you hear, we hear the label Pharisee and we're conditioned because of our study in the, in the Gospels to view the Pharisees as the bad guys. But in the first century, the Pharisees were not viewed by the average Jew as the bad guys. They were the good guys. They were the religious experts. They were, they were people that were highly respected uh, in, in Jewish culture, which made Jesus butting heads with them uh, such a startling thing. Uh, nobody was surprised there was a Pharisee in the temple praying. Where else would they be, right? That's where Pharisees should be. They should be in the temple. They should be praying. No one's surprised by that. Everybody, though, is surprised to hear there's a tax collector there, too, because tax collectors were the low life, you know, they were the, the people that everybody disliked, their profession and their choices in life. But the biggest twist is very, at the end, after both of these men pray, the tax collector went home right with God, the Pharisee not so much. Um, and the reason was the tax collector prayed with honest transparency with God. And as I thought about it, just this contrast between these two, uh, put this phrase down, it's possible. It's possible to pray with self-obsessed righteousness. And by that I just mean this Pharisee was all wrapped up in himself and how right he assumed he was. And that was all I talked about. 
And it's possible to pray that way. Tell God how impressive we are, how lucky he is to have us on his team, you know, and how much he ought to do what we want him to do. It's possible to pray with self-obsessed righteousness or to pray with sin-aware repentance and awareness that, you know what, I am not who I should be yet. I need growth, I need to change, I need to forgive me, God. It's possible to pray with both of those tones uh, in your approach and only one of them gets through. Uh, the Pharisee stood and basically explained to God how great he was, you know. He, th he thanked God that he wasn't like other people. Now, if there is a, a demeaning uh, attitude, there, there it is. He thanked God that he wasn't like other people, you know, people that sin in ways that I'm not tempted to sin. Uh, and he even points to the poor tax collector on the other side of the room and says, hey, take that guy for an example. I'm really glad, God, I'm not like him. You know, that I haven't messed up my life like he has. Uh, I'm thankful I'm not like that guy. Instead, I do all the right things. And he lists off what he does. Just a little bit of what he does. I fast twice a week. If you wonder why that was impressive, the Jews were required to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. I fast twice every single week, God. You ought to be impressed with that. Um, I give a tenth of everything. Not just a tenth of my income, a tenth of everything. And Jesus has addressed that before. Thank you, God, that I am so impressive as a religious person. You read this man's prayer, and I don't know what it sounds like for you, but to me it's like, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard. It just sort of grates against your... To, to hear somebody describe himself and talk about himself that way, how wonderful he is to God. And I think that was on purpose that Jesus told this story, because everybody listening had the same instinctive reaction. This Pharisee was just obsessed with himself, deluded by how wonderful he assumed that he was and how lucky God was to have him on his side. And yet Jesus framed it intentionally in a certain way there to highlight how we all have a problem with that once in a while. And, I, you know, you don't have to admit this or, or anything, but I think we all have a little bit of Pharisee inside. And I'll give you an example why. I find it rather ironic that even reading this story, we're all a little bit tempted to look down on that guy. Who's looking down on, on the other people, right? We're all tempted to sort of, man, I can't believe that guy. Um, that's the same thing he was doing. We all have a little bit of that struggle, a little bit of that strain in us. It's a vicious trap that we're all susceptible to, sort of being obsessed with ourselves and our rightness and viewing other people in a demeaning way. And all that is is sinful pride. The Pharisee didn't see it. Sometimes we don't see it. But it's something to look for. It's something to check. I don't remember where I heard this quote, but I've saved it over the years. Uh, I was tempted to just put anonymous up here because I don't remember who wrote it. But human nature seems to endow people with the ability to size up everybody but themselves. That's the way we are. That's the way we are. As you come back to the Jesus story here and you realize, you know, that guy may have looked like he was praying, may have sounded like he was impress impressively having this conversation with God, but he was only talking to himself. God wasn't listening. He didn't go home right with God. And across the room, you find the tax collector. This one that everybody who, when they heard that title, are, are already felt, you know, 
some angst against. Uh, tax collectors were hated, uh, despised for the things that they did, the way that they took advantage of people, the way that they uh, gained their possessions in improper ways. And Jesus tells, paints into his story, tax collector, hated, despised, good reason for the things he'd done. But fully aware of his guilt, fully aware of his flaws. And his prayer is just really simple. You know, he can't even lift his eyes to look towards heaven. Just sort of beats his chest as if to say, in here I know I'm a mess. His prayer is just very simple. God have mercy on me, a sinner. When I studied this this week, I found something that is very interesting. It's not translated this way because it doesn't sound quite right. But the, uh, in the Greek language, um, it is the definite article is used for sinner. In other words, if we were to literally translate it, uh, he was praying, God have mercy on me, the sinner. As if he's saying, you know what, God, the worst one out here is this guy. Me. I am the sinner. I don't deserve anything but the back of your hand. Please have mercy on me. I'm the, I'm the worst. I'm the sinner. He owned his sin. He knew he was unworthy. He asked for God's mercy. Um, and Jesus said, that man went home right with God. Because of his honest transparency. He was declared right with God because God exalts those who humble themselves with honest transparency and own their sin and seek grace from their Heavenly Father. I have been uh, working on trying to save my old, oldest sermons before I, I uh, had them saved on the computer. So I've been digital, digitalizing them and also give, it gives me the opportunity to notice some stories from years and years gone by. I read one recently. I went to a, a, a little Christian school for the last three years of high school uh, in western New York and uh, we were involved in statewide competitions in New York and for a week every every spring uh, we would go and compete against other Christian schools and there's all kinds of different categories track and field events and and events like writing and photography and art and music that were all areas of competition where you know you could sign up for a different area and compete in that and the very first year that I was in the Christian school I, I entered in the brass competition. I had been taking trumpet lessons for five years at the time, and so I worked very hard to prepare a trumpet solo to enter in this, this competition. The organist at our church uh, worked with me to create uh, an accompaniment cassette, and kids, if you don't have any idea what a cassette is, ask your parents later. They'll explain that to you. But... Um, but, uh, you know, I worked on that for quite some time and thought I was ready. As hard as I practiced, though, and if any musicians or if you've ever been in band in the past, you, you get this part of the story. There was just one spot, a very high note near the end of the song that sometimes worked and sometimes it didn't come out at all. Um, well, you know, I went, we went to that competition the day of the performance in front of the judges there. It was in a, a school, and so you'd go in this little classroom, and there was like three judges in there that you had to perform in front of. Um, I arrived early enough for my time slot, not to be late, but also early enough to sit outside the classroom and hear the guy who was playing before me. 
do a phenomenal job. You know, this guy's probably in the New, New York Philharmonic today. Uh, just incredible uh, how he played. And, um, you know, when you hear that, you realize, I'm so-so, and this guy's, you know, right away, your confidence starts to dwindle a little bit. But um, I went in, introduced myself, stuck my cassette in, hit the play button, and it went okay. You know, it wasn't like the guy before me, but it went okay. I got through until, until I got to that one hard high note. And um, you can probably guess what happened. Missed it completely. Nothing came out of the end of the horn. Um, and it was just totally red-faced experience. This 14-year-old boy was crushed. Well, anyway, you know, he went through the rest of the week, and awards night was, I think, probably Thursday night. We went home on Friday. We all sat, all gathered in the auditorium, or sitting through them, handing out first and second, third place trophies in all the different categories, you know. And they came to the brass category, and I hunched over in my seat, you know, waiting to hear Mr. Phil Harmonic's name get called uh, for first place. And of course, they do what we like we did yesterday. They start with third place, right? And third place, the announcer read, third place goes to Scott Farrell of First Baptist Christian School in North Tonawanda. And I looked down the aisle at my teacher and, you know, she just shrugged and smiled and said, you should probably go up there and pick up your, your award. Um, and I really ought to just stop the story there. But I learned later there were only three entrants in the... <laughs> And the brass competition, so it kind of loses its luster of all that. But I, it doesn't change the fact that I remember sitting in that chair with that medallion in my hand. And thinking, I did not deserve this. And yet here it is. Did not deserve this. And whenever I, I think about examples of what grace means, to me that's a great story. Didn't deserve this. Didn't deserve what Jesus did for me on the cross. Yeah, here it is. Don't deserve to have a Heavenly Father who listens when I pray, answers those prayers. Yet here it is. It's an indelible image of grace, which to me is a wonderful word. The writer of Hebrews describes what happens when you pray with the, that terminology. Hebrews 4. Let us then approach God's throne of what? Grace. With confidence. So we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's, that's prayer. Approaching God's throne a throne where grace is dispensed and finding help there, finding mercy there, finding what the tax collector found when he came with honest transparency. And so here's that second, second part of that. Honest admission of your sin and desperate dependence on God is a prerequisite for finding help. If you go with the tone of the Pharisee of, it's all about me, God, you should be impressed with me. I've I, you know, done what I should. Um, Going to walk away empty-handed. But if you go with honest admission of your sin, desperate dependence on God, you'll find help from the throne of grace. Jesus wanted his guys to remember that. 
Don't bother telling God how great you are. Come to Him with honest transparency, with open admission. Express your desperate need for Him to help you. And you'll find grace. You find grace in your times of need. There's one last section here I want to cover. And you might think this is disconnected, but I don't think it is. Verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. That first, uh, first phrase there, the NIV rightly translates the word babies. There's other words for little children, uh, but Luke didn't use those. He used the word that would describe babies. Moms were bringing their babies to Jesus to have him touch them, bless them. Um, and the disciples, you know, they tried to steer these moms away, uh, but Jesus intervened. Because babies are a great example of being a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, babies enter life as precious gifts. Amazing wonders from God. Um, but if you're a parent and you remember those days, some of you are in those days, but if you can remember those days, you realize babies are kind of needy. Uh, I talked with Amanda on Wednesday uh, and for just a few minutes around lunchtime, and it seems like every time I talk to her on the phone, she's feeding Mateo, and I can hear the slurp, 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 you know, through the, through the phone as, as she's holding the bottle pretty close there. Uh, all babies are like that, you know. Babies have to be fed. They have to have their diapers changed. They have to be carried everywhere that they go. In fact, you could say, and this, you know, just simple observation, that an infant is totally unable to survive. A baby is unable to survive. Apart from the love, the provision, the protection provided by a parent. And I think that was Jesus' point. Because productive prayer comes from children of God who realize that they are that dependent on their Heavenly Father. They are that dependent. I can't fix this myself, God. These problems I don't have a way out of. I desperately need you to intervene and rescue and help and direct my life. And so I'm just going to cry. I'm just going to cry to you in prayer. Like a baby would. It highlights maybe both of those traits, doesn't it? Persistent. You ever have a baby that won't stop crying? And honest dependence, total transparency, desperate need. The two things I put on the handout there, persistent pleading and honest transparency, they, they might not fit in most people's lists of the best way to go through life. Um key strategies for getting the, the most success out of your, your path forward. And yet Jesus put it front and center for his guys. Persistently plead in prayer. Be totally honest and dependent on God in prayer. 
so that tells me that it needs to be the same for us. And so here's how I just want to close with a couple thoughts here. What about you? Um, prayer is a lifeline for na- navigating a crazy world. If, if we truly are children of God, prayer is a lifeline for navigating a crazy world. But we have to do some things. Number one, we have to choose to pray. We have to choose to pray. And, and, you know, I don't want to be nosy, but I do want to ask the question, is it that for you? Is prayer a lifeline for you? Is it something that is such a knee-jerk instinct in your life that if it was possible to bug God, you might be concerned that you were getting too close to, you know, annoying Him? Um bothering him too much. If so, if you say, yeah, that, that's me, you're getting close. You're getting close to where you should be. To what Jesus describes here should be happening. Because he, he told the story of the persistent widow who had no rights and no hope for a reason. He told his disciples, be like that. Be that persistent when you pray. But you've got to choose that. Life happens. You get up in the morning and life starts, right? Life just happens. Praying is a choice. And persistently praying, praying without ceasing, um, is a choice. Taking everything and anything to God in prayer is a choice. Uh, I was thinking about different verses that, that highlight this. And one of my favorites is found in Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul. The whole context is so helpful. But hey, he said, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's the result peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't stress out about anything. Pray about everything. Say thank you as you do, but pray about everything. Bring every prayer and petition to Him. That's persistent widow quality, praying. That's the persistent widow type of praying there. And you got to choose that. you got to choose that. But here's the second part of it. Choose to pray and pray with humble, humble, dependent, humble dependence. Um, are, you, are you honest with God when you pray? Yeah, it's kind of silly that we're not too many times because he knows all about us already. Right? He knows all of our thoughts. He knows all of our flaws. Uh, he sees your sin already. He knows the stuff about you you, you don't, maybe don't even see yet. So check pride at the door when you pray and just be honest. Talk to him. God values and even exalts humility. Uh, Both of these two traits are just so valuable. Choose to pray with persistence and as you pray, pray with humble dependence. If you grab those things, grab the persistence of the widow, the humility of the tax collector, you're going to find that prayer is more. It is more than just spoken words. It is more than, than just religious ritual checked off a list. It is the air you breathe that is vital to every day. It's your lifeline. And it's how you find help in every single need. And it's what God wants to see in your life. But this last, last little phrase is kind of where the rubber meets the road. What do you need to do? How do you need to do life differently this week? How do you need to take a different step this week in the way you pray for those traits to match your life? I ask you to appropriately bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to pray with you, and then we're going to sing a song about prayer, and we're going to head home. Father God, I am very thankful for the privilege of prayer. 
I'm thankful, Lord, that you have open ears to your kids all the time. I need your grace, your mercy on a daily basis. And everyone in this room does too. The way to access that, the way to stay connected to you, isn't through a ritual. It isn't through a, uh, a formula. It isn't through a posture even. It's through a conversation. A conversation that doesn't ever really come to an end. We just keep on talking. We just keep pick up where we left off a little while ago. It's a conversation in which we're totally open, totally honest about our failures, our struggles, our problem right then. We ask for help. I'm so thankful for that. I pray that we would all be thankful for it, but also recognize this is an area that I need to grow a little. It's an area I need to change some of my life. For every person here, there's some ways, some steps, some things we need to do differently. So prayer becomes as central to every day as it should be. And I would pray as we close, um, we'll determine what those things are. Sort of narrow our focus on one thing I could do this week differently to make prayer happen in my life in a way that's productive, that accomplishes something, and that brings grace and mercy in my times of need. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.